A listener note, this story is about rape investigations and includes descriptions of sexual violence. My heart felt like it was sitting outside of me. Listen to me, I understand you're hysterical. He's already like, yeah, we don't believe you. There was a detective um, that wanted to talk to me. That's not the time necessarily to do a detailed interview. Like, no way, no how, I am not talking to another guy. I'm not talking to those guys again. I do not believe that is a fault of the Louisville Police Department for honoring her wishes and not going in and collecting that. This is Dig, a podcast from the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting and Louisville Public Media. I'm Eleanor Klibanoff. Back home in Valparaiso, Indiana, Jen Sonato is familiar with the criminal justice system. Her good friend is married to the police chief. She knows a bunch of lawyers around town and is friendly with a judge. So when she reported a rape to the Louisville Metro Police Department in January 2018, she thought she understood how the system would work. Her first interaction with the patrol officers shook her. But then the process started to go the way she expected. Her case was assigned to a detective, Lindsay Lynch. Two weeks later, Jen made the four-hour drive back to Louisville for an interview with Lynch about what had happened that night. A few weeks later, she drove two and a half hours to Indianapolis to meet Lynch to review a photo lineup. There, she positively identified the man who'd been at the hotel bar that night, the man she says drugged and raped her. She thought the police were moving towards an arrest. But then, Jen started having trouble getting answers from Lynch. I just felt like I wasn't in the loop on anything, like I was bugging them. And then another phone call, I was like, how come, like, my blood tests aren't done? Like, how long can I expect for this? You have to understand, you're not the only case and this is how it goes and we don't put anybody in front of anybody else and I'm like I'm not asking for that I'm just wondering. Jen says she had one phone call with Lynch where the detective told her vaginal lacerations can be caused by tampons. Jen's rape kit exam from that night documented multiple vaginal lacerations one of which was actively bleeding and throughout the process Jen says she felt like Lynch was really focused on what the prosecutor was going to do with the case. There was so much talk about Make a case for the prosecutor. The prosecutor, they won't even look at it without your DNA. This didn't make sense to Jen. Weren't the police the ones that were going to arrest the suspect? What she didn't know was that in Louisville, prosecutors screen almost every rape case before an arrest is made. That's what Assistant Commonwealth Attorney Christy Gray, the Louisville sex crimes prosecutor, told us last time. Essentially, it all comes down to whether or not, as a prosecutor, I believe that the evidence supports our burden, which is beyond a reasonable doubt. Police and prosecutors are two different parts of the criminal justice system, with two different standards of proof. Christy Gray's burden is proof beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law. But police only need probable cause to make an arrest. Let's take a minute to talk about what probable cause is. First, a definition from Jonathan Kurland, an attorney advisor at Equitas. That's a group of experts that help prosecutors improve their response to sex crimes. The technical definition of probable cause is accepting all the evidence is true. Um, Does the allegation constitute a crime under statutory law? That's not a particularly high bar to clear. Just because an officer has met it doesn't mean they're going to make an arrest. After all, with only the bare minimum probable cause, that case may not stand up when prosecutors have to prove it beyond a reasonable doubt. 
which is why when it comes to complicated cases like sex crimes, police will often continue to build a case and collect more evidence beyond just probable cause before making an arrest. Whether they screen every rape case with a prosecutor or not, police generally want to build a case that a prosecutor will take, a case that will end in conviction. Curlin didn't comment on Louisville specifically, but he says prosecutors set the standard for what cases they'll take, what cases they think can stand up in court. And sometimes when it comes to rape cases, they set that bar too high. So then that gets transmitted through other disciplines working sexual violence cases. And if they don't think the prosecutor's going to approve it, they don't exert the effort in maybe fully investigating it. What he just described is called downstream orientation. When prosecutors set that high bar, police follow suit worrying about things that aren't their concern at that point, like what a jury might do down the road. There's a prime example of downstream orientation in the body camera footage from the night Jen Sonato reported a rape to LMPD. Standing in the hallway outside her hotel room, Officer Jeremy Wright, a patrol officer without specialized training in rape cases, is already listing the problems with this case. One of the biggest hurdles we got to deal with is why there's no video, two, she's drunk. So we don't know how much we can believe out of her. One, there's no video. Two, she's drunk, so we don't know how much we can believe out of her. LMPD spokesperson Jesse Halliday said Wright didn't overstep here because he still did everything he was supposed to. He called for sex crimes detectives and he got the victim to the hospital. But it's not just Jen's case. I looked at the police investigative record for every rape reported to LMPD in 2017 and case files for more than two dozen. From the FBI statistics, that includes reports of rape or attempted rape, sodomy or attempted sodomy. And under Kentucky law, sodomy is oral or anal rape. I found several instances where prosecutors declined cases due to a lack of evidence early in the investigation. Like when a woman told police her partner had raped her a few weeks before. She sent the detective photos of bruises she said were from the attack. The detective noted that she wouldn't get medical treatment or a sexual assault exam. The file shows no other investigation before the detective screened the case with the prosecutor, declined due to a lack of evidence. In one case, a 17-year-old told police that a friend strangled and sexually assaulted her. She texted the friend the next day and told him she'd repeatedly said no, but he, quote, did it anyway. He replied with a long, angry text denying that he raped her. The detective never interviewed the suspect and, in a note to the prosecutor, said the victim didn't get a rape kit exam. Of course, a rape kit would only have shown whether sexual contact occurred, something the suspect already admitted to in text messages. It would not have proven whether or not she consented. Still, the prosecutor declined the case, so the police didn't make an arrest. Lieutenant Shannon Lauder, head of LMPD's Special Victims Unit, strongly disagreed with my review of these cases. If it's a case that needs to be screened by a prosecutor to determine whether or not to move forward with charges, then it's done at the end of the investigation, typically. I mean, we, we have reviewed case files where only the victim was interviewed, the suspect was never interviewed, no other investigative efforts were sort of undertaken, and then the case was screened with the prosecutor. I'm not going to allow you to act like my detectives are not thoroughly investigating cases because it's going to sound good for your article. That's reckless of you. It doesn't serve victims for you to say that, and I don't appreciate it. My detectives do a thorough job. Let's go back to the funnel I told you about last time. 194 rapes reported to LMPD in 2017. 
In 122 cases, records indicate Lauder's detectives thought they did a thorough enough job to clear the case. They'd identified a suspect and obtained enough evidence to justify an arrest. But in only 30 cases, were they able to go make that arrest? Because in Louisville, it's up to the prosecutor to decide who the police arrest in rape cases. There are real effects to cases being declined before an arrest is made. For one, if you're not arrested, you're never publicly identified as a rape suspect. Kentucky law allows law enforcement agencies to protect the identity of suspects accused of crimes if they're not arrested. That means the same person could be accused of rape multiple times without the public knowing. Or it could be someone you know, someone you might be inclined to trust. I think a lot of victims feel like they need to, if they can't get this perpetrator off the street, at least they can notify others that this is a dangerous person. Eileen Rechtenwald is the executive director of the Kentucky Association of Sexual Assault Programs. She oversees the state's coalition of rape crisis centers. Even if they don't get convicted, at least their name was in the paper, and perhaps it wouldn't be a good idea if you were considering dating this person uh, to date them. And also, if no arrest is made, the prosecutor never has to meet with the victim. Under state law, victims have a right to be consulted by prosecutors if their case is going to be dismissed but only once it's been indicted. No arrest means no indictment, which means the prosecutor doesn't have to meet with the victim before declining the case. That's how victims like Jen Sonato are left in the dark, trying to convince an unseen prosecutor, who they never meet, that their case is viable. A prosecutor who isn't just deciding whether to prosecute, but even whether the police make an arrest. I felt like the prosecutor was the Wizard of Oz. In March 2018, Jen sent LMPD detective Lindsay Lynch an email. In the email, Jen asked Lynch what she'd meant when she talked about the Commonwealth wanting a really strong case to justify moving forward. Lynch said Jen must have misunderstood. Once they had enough evidence for a judge to sign a warrant, the police would gladly go pick the guy up. Lynch gave someone else a more accurate picture of the relationship between police and prosecutors. The suspect. Uh, My name is Lindsay Lynch. I'm a detective with Louisville Metro Police Department. I got the audio of this phone call and many of the documents you're hearing about in this reporting from Jen's lawyer, who got them through a subpoena. Jen is currently suing the Marriott and the man she accused of rape in civil court. She alleges that the hotel was negligent in overserving her and by failing to follow up on a noise complaint from a neighboring room. In court filings, the hotel denies negligence. A lawyer for the hotel did not return requests for comment. She also alleges that the man committed battery and inflicted emotional distress. In court documents, he denies raping Jen. His lawyer declined my interview request on his behalf and said he maintains the encounter was consensual. He hasn't been charged with a crime, so we're not naming him here. That's also why you won't hear his voice in this call from July 2018. That's seven months after Jen's initial police report and six months after she picked him out of a photo lineup. Up until this moment, he has no idea he's the main suspect in an ongoing police investigation. So, okay, there's a female named Jen Sonato who um, says that she met you at the hotel bar there. Do you remember this at all? He says he might have met someone. Can you tell me what happened? He asks, what are we talking about? So, okay, the, the female, she said that she went to the bar and that she doesn't really remember, but she's, she is saying that she was sexually assaulted. He insists nothing like that happened. Well, so I was hoping that you could tell me what did happen. He confirms that he met Jen. He says she was very flirty, pursuing him. He says she seemed loopy, like maybe she was on medication. 
They had a few drinks at the hotel bar and then went back to one of their rooms. He couldn't remember which. And they had a consensual sexual encounter. He says they talked after and she wanted to keep in touch. He didn't since he's married. He's having a hard time remembering the details. And he asks the detective why she's just now calling about something that happened in January. To be honest with you, what I've been waiting on is DNA results. I was waiting to see if she had semen in her kit. An initial screen of Jen's rape kit found DNA in the form of saliva. At the time of the call, Lynch doesn't yet know whose. There was no evidence of semen. Lynch tells the suspect that. She was also waiting for the results from the toxicology screen. Jen's blood sample from that night showed prescription drugs and marijuana, which she said she'd smoked on New Year's Eve a few days before. There was no evidence of date rape drugs, although the lab didn't test for at least one drug commonly used to facilitate rape, GHB which can cause feelings of euphoria, increased arousal, memory loss, loss of consciousness, and hallucinations. Several experts told me that many date rape drugs leave the bloodstream quickly, so quickly that a positive test confirms drugs, but a negative test doesn't mean they were never there. A urine sample possibly would have held evidence of drugs longer, but her urine wasn't tested, so we just can't know if she was drugged or not. And now you'll hear Lynch begin to distance herself from the decision-making process. So um, this is the way that these things usually work, okay? I've been collecting evidence on this case. I've been talking with Jen. Um, I've talked to you. Basically what I do is I see what, what I can find, and then I go to a prosecutor and I say, this is what she said, this is what he said, this is what the evidence says, and I see what they want um, to do with the case. I don't know that anything will come of it. I don't know what's happening. Uh, it's really up to them. She asks the suspect about Jen's claim that there was more than one man in the room that night. He strongly denies that. So Lynch floats a new theory. I'm not positive that... After something didn't happen after she left your room. In her first phone call with the suspect, she's telling him someone else may have raped Jen after he had consensual sex with her. He says that's what he was wondering, too. Or she suggests maybe nothing happened. Normally, um, especially in cases like this, we need something that proves that there was a, a crime. And I'm not sure that we have met that. There was limited physical evidence collected from the hotel. The police didn't do any other investigating that night. They never interviewed Jen's niece, who she first told about the assault, the bartenders at the hotel, or the person staying in the next room who called in a noise complaint. And in their first phone call with the suspect, seven months later, they apparently gather no new details worth following up on. Because the very next day, Lynch is calling him back. Okay, so I just got off the phone with the Commonwealth's attorney, Christy Gray. And she and I both um, are under the impression that we do not think that it is a good case. He jumps in, oh my God, thank you. He sounds jubilant. Lynch is telling him that she and the prosecutor have agreed. This is not a good case to try. He talks about how this could have been much worse for him. He says he's glad the detective was honest and cool. Lynch asks for his DNA so she can see if anyone else's DNA comes back in the rape kit. He agrees, and then he says he wants to buy Lynch a cup of coffee. She laughs and says, I'll be the one with a swab in your mouth. He asks if he's off the hook. She says, yes. By July 2018, everyone, the police, the prosecutor, the former suspect, are on the same page about that. Everyone except Jen Sonato. No one told Jen. Meanwhile, Jen continued to email and call the police department, asking for updates. She sent them information she found about the man from her own research. 
In November 2018, LMPD victim advocate Nicole Carroll emailed Jen, telling her the investigation was ongoing. She wrote, The Commonwealth's Attorney's Office does not review cases until the DNA results come back. She does not tell Jen that, four months prior, Gray and Lynch had decided. This was not a good case to try. A lot of this process struck me as odd, waiting seven months to call the suspect and then telling him right off the bat the name of the woman and what she was accusing him of, even floating the theory that maybe someone came in after he left and raped her. But I'm not an expert, so I called one. This is Liz. Hi, Liz. It's Eleanor Klipanoff. Elizabeth Donegan ran the Austin, Texas Sex Crimes Unit for 10 years. She now works as a national consultant, helping police departments improve their response to sex crimes. She's also running for sheriff in Austin, so she's a little busy. We played phone tag for a few days before connecting. Hi, Eleanor. Oh my God, you're a real person. I am. I am a real person. I am so glad we can finally connect. (laughs) I asked Donegan about how detectives should approach a suspect interview in a rape case. In these particular crimes, you have to be smarter than your bad guy. She recommended starting with a pretext phone call if possible, having the victim call the suspect while the police monitor, or having the detective reach out for a different reason. If not that, she said, at least don't lead with the fact that he's been accused of rape. That's not the appropriate way to do an interview. You don't, you know, show your hand. You want to see what can you tell me so that you can utilize that information to poke holes in their story. What admissions can you obtain from your perpetrator that's going to help you further your investigation. Donegan said the detective gave up a lot of leverage when she told the suspect there was no semen in the rape kit. She said it sounded like the detective was treating the interview like an item to check off her to-do list before closing the case. Donegan knows something about what we're talking about here. She helped build the Austin Police Department into a national model for its response to sex crimes. But then, in 2011, she said a new supervisor asked her to go back and see if any of her department's suspended cases could be cleared by exception. And I said, if we could have done that, we would have done that. And I didn't do anything because there was nothing to be done, you know. And what that clearly, what they were doing was wanting me to change the closure so it would affect the stats at the end of the year. Donegan refused to change the cases, and she was transferred out of the department. But now, a group of women have sued the Austin Police Department and the district attorney's office, alleging that their cases were mishandled. A state audit found that the Austin Police Department improperly cleared rape cases by exception. The police department agreed with those findings and has ordered a third-party audit to look more deeply at the issue. The FBI has really firm guidelines for how to clear a case by exception, according to its Uniform Crime Reporting Program, the UCR. Either you abide by what the UCR lays out as what is needed to clear a case exceptionally. There's no wiggle room. Donegan said rape cases often get mishandled, not because the detectives don't want to do a good job, but because these crimes aren't always a priority for police departments. As an example, she questioned why the interview with the man Jen accused of rape happened over the phone. She said a face-to-face interview is far preferable to assess whether a suspect is being truthful. I told Donegan the suspect lives out of town. She said they should have flown the detective there. This is a potentially drug-facilitated sexual assault. Why are we not affording our investigators the opportunity to interview this guy? If it was a homicide, we would. A few weeks after interviewing the suspect over the phone, Detective Lynch did get a face-to-face meeting with him when he came by the police department to give his DNA sample. Lynch didn't ask him any questions. 
She didn't try to get any more details about that night. He said, I don't even want to get into it. So she didn't. Next time on Dig. Honestly, you know, I think there's a strong likelihood that cases get screened out and they go on to reoffend and we don't ever know about it. Dig was reported by Eleanor Klibanoff, edited by Kate Howard, and produced by Laura Ellis. Jake Ryan and Alexander Kanick contributed to the reporting. Kojin Tashiro created our theme music with assistance from Ryan Marsh. Photos by Tyler Franklin and illustrations by Carrie Neumeyer. We receive support for this project from the Solutions Journalism Network, a nonprofit organization dedicated to rigorous and compelling reporting about responses to social problems. Special thanks to Katherine Winter, Erica Peterson, Ashley Clark Thompson, and Jonis Franklin. See the photos and documents behind the story at kydig.org. From the Kentucky Center for Investigative Reporting and Louisville Public Media. My name is Keely Sorensen, and I'm the Vice President of Victim Services at RAIN, the nation's largest anti-sexual violence organization. The National Sexual Assault Hotline can be reached at 1-800-656-HOPE. The goal of the National Sexual Assault Hotline is really to help survivors and their loved ones learn more about sexual violence and take the next steps that they feel ready to take in their healing journey. What we want people to know is that if you or someone you know has been affected by sexual violence, please consider reaching out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline. We operate 24 hours a day, seven days a week, both online and by telephone. 1-800-656-HOPE. We are here for you and we believe you.